0: welcome everybody this is Charlie and this is the um, podcast to hell and back it's um, Wednesday May 30th 2018 and as usual I'm recording this myself from uh, Northampton Massachusetts and I have a guest today that's in um, call, calling in from Seattle uh, and that's Natalia Garcia we're going to get to her in a few minutes So I just want to introduce this by making a couple of comments. Um, Those of you who listened to the three podcasts I did, the most recent three were with Melanie Harned, expert uh, in the treatment uh, of DBT and in what she developed out of DBT, DBT with prolonged exposure for PTSD treatment. Um, And one of the things we briefly touched on was a metaphor um, for coping with trauma and loss that has stuck with me um, that uh, just a bi- biological analogy the fact that when we have injuries uh, and they those injuries cause wounds um, and the body amazingly knows how to heal wounds and it's such an intricate process uh, when you get down into the microscopic level that it's just like a miracle um, and yet it goes on and goes on um, but sometimes uh, it doesn't go on and on and uh, he- the healing process is stalled by one or another thing and we then we need to help the healing process along somehow um, and try to establish conditions that allow the body to resume the process of healing and Melanie talked about um, how that applies to psychological uh, traumatic experiences that we have these psychological injuries, so to speak, and uh, that um, that our body and our our body seems to know how to heal those as well. In that most traumatic events do not lead to PTSD, but they lead to some spontaneous uh, form of healing that's probably equally intricate um, to wound healing, and it goes on. But that sometimes the process gets stuck we end up with PTSD and we have to help the process get unstuck and move forward again Um, so I just wanted to put that first uh, on the table here because uh, I think we're going to hear more about that today and next week um, in this podcast but um, I know personally I sustained as probably everybody listening here has their own versions of tragedies and traumas and losses and I I sustained several big losses as a child um, in the first grade I lost a, a friend who choked at breakfast and died I lost a friend in third grade who died of cancer I lost a close friend in sixth grade who died of a freak accident of electrocution and so I certainly did not grow up thinking that uh, shit doesn't happen in life um, and that bad things do happen they happen unexpectedly they happen uh, sometimes inexplicable inexplicably um, but i must say in introducing natalia uh, i personally think i have never not even close had to deal with a loss of the magnitude uh, that she has gone through Uh it, may, it makes it stunning actually that she's able to talk to us today and and share her pathway you might say um, the death of one's own child uh, in an inexplicable unexpected way you know so many children die in the world of of war and famine and uh, starvation and, and and losses and injuries of different kinds and and they're terrible and understandable but every once in a while there's one that's just completely um, mysterious and hard to understand and Natalia's uh, son Jackson at age two died in his sleep uh, in just that inexplicable way a little over I think it must have been a little over eight months ago um, that uh, uh, and I'm going to let her uh, tell you about that and uh, uh, I want us to learn I want personally to learn from what uh, from how this happened how she how she's gone through it and how she's coped with it not that I think that uh, every one of us has the same style or resources Uh, we all have our own signature for how we cope with traumatic events but um, i do think that there's universal lessons for coping and the more we know about them maybe the more we can help ourselves and each other uh, in using them so that's really the point of going down this road today and next time so natalia with that um With that having been said, I want to thank you for joining me. I think it's uh, remarkable that you're here, and I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, Charlie, and let me just start by sharing how honored I am to be a guest on this podcast. I've been listening in since Melanie Harned, who I work with, told me about it a couple of months ago, and I really love what you're doing with it, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be part of it by sharing my story, and it's a very sad one, as you started to share, um, but I am very interested in exploring ways to use my experience to help other people, and that's why I'm here today, trying to essentially not let my suffering go to waste, so to speak. Um, So Hmm. I also want to comment briefly on what you said, because I think you're right. In many ways, what I've experienced is actually not unique. A lot of people experience loss and trauma, I mean, all the time. And I think, if anything, what's unique about my story is the fact that I am a DBT therapist with a strong background in... PTSD and post-trauma recovery, this is specifically what I study, and so I guess I just feel very privileged to have this, I guess, in my back pocket and feel that this podcast is actually an opportunity to share a bit about how I've worked to climb out of my own personal hell. Um, so I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you all. Thank you for having me here.
0: Mm. You know, I had an experience in going back and forth, first in talking to you in, in leading up to this, and then in making the announcements um as you saw in a couple formats where I let people know about what's coming. And I got uh the date wrong of when your son passed away and I um and then when I, that was pointed out to me and I realized that it actually really shook me more than or I make mistakes all the time. It's entirely within my repertoire to <laughs> have made that mistake. Anyone who knows me well knows that. But at the same time it really shook me. And then I thought, why am I so shook? I thought, in a way, for obvious reasons, like, oh, my God, I didn't want to upset you. As if that would upset you. Um, (laughs) And then I realized, wait a minute, this is my thing. And I wonder how many people have trouble talking with you naturally, or responding to things naturally, or saying things uh, to to you naturally, because it is such a profound thing that people react to.
1: Yeah, and I think probably my Friends and family can comment more on that, but I am sure that people um, sometimes don't know what to say or how to say or have strong reactions um, talking mm. to me. And I think I think that's also natural and part of you know this uncharted territory of of what this is um, that we're all sort of stumbling along and doing our best. And, and don't worry at all for getting the date wrong. You got the month right, September. So not the first, but the 20th.
0: Right, September 20th. Um. Yeah. And you have such a good friend, because somebody reached out to me and very respectfully and kindly let me know. <laughs> so oh, was...
1: thank you to whoever did that. <laughs>
0: yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> thank you. Look, I want to ask you if you would just start by telling people more about yourself. You started by saying yeah. a little about the work that you're doing. I wonder yeah. if you could just give us a little background of who you are, where you came from, this, mm-hmm. um, you know, where, where you grew up, and, um, and how you ended up <coughs> doing the kind of... Um, work that you're doing as well as uh, getting into your marriage and then having a child.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So um, I'm a clinical psychology graduate student. I'm in my sixth year, just wrapping up here at the University of Washington in Seattle. Um, and I guess research-wise, um, I hail from UW's Center for Anxiety and Traumatic Stress, which is um, my lab here, led by Lori Zollner. And uh, here we're interested in studying things about how people recover after trauma. We're interested in things like what works for whom. Um, So I've gotten a lot of training in assessing and also treating PTSD in my time here. And then clinically, I've also had the wonderful privilege of working at the BRTC through Marsha Linehan's DBT practicum. And through that, I've gotten to work with individuals with BPD, a high risk for suicide. I got to treat a couple of individual clients. um, And then obviously participate on the DBT consult team and also lead an adult, skills group for one year. And in fact, that was my favorite part of the whole experience uh, was the skills group. I think there's something really powerful about uh, equipping people with those essential skills and tools for getting themselves out of hell um, and using personal stories and experiences as a key ingredient for doing those groups. And I think it just is a helpful way for the material to sort of come to life. And I guess that's not too different from the goal of this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a bit of what my work has been. And um, in terms of my, you know, personal background details, I'm 31 years old, Latina woman, I was born in Puerto Rico. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area. That's where I've spent most of my life and came here to Seattle for grad school about six years ago. And I'm married to Brian, my husband of five years, we met in college, we've been together, I guess, Almost eleven years, um, and we had our first and only child, Jackson, about three years ago. And, and like you said, he passed away last September on the twentieth, uh, just a few days after his second birthday. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let me ask you something before we get into now that stage of the story, which is um, going to be so compelling. And um, uh, I was just in intrigued of everything in your dbt training um that you really liked skills group most i i was really happy to hear that actually and there's a lot of people listening that may have either uh, been in dbt skills groups uh themselves either as clients or as therapists or as family members and i i wonder if you could just share a little more what what is it that you loved so much about skills groups
1: ah let me think um I think what I loved was was back to that piece around just making the material come to life. There's something about skills group where it's, I mean, and I guess it's true about DBT in general, which makes it a little different from other uh, treatment modalities, but this invitation to sort of really use personal examples, personal stories um, to illustrate um, mm-hmm. difficult concepts. Um, and I think that... It was a time that I really felt, um, you know, it was hard. I don't want to make it sound like it was the easiest thing, but it was, it was a, a nice mastery experience by the end of it to feel like I could really help to get across these complicated ideas, mm-hmm. um, these different skills that are in the skills book, um, skills manual in a way that was just really, um, approachable and um, digestible mm-hmm. and I feel like using those stories and using client stories their own stories because of course it's a it's an environment where everybody's doing a lot of sharing um, mm-hmm. and to really make the material come to life in a way that that's unique um, I, mm-hmm. I, I love that I love teaching I guess is, is what I'm getting at so that's yeah, Well, nice. you
0: love a certain kind of teaching yeah that involves blending the personal with right. the, with the uh, didactic teaching
1: exactly yeah. exactly and that yeah.
0: that is a special thing and I think it does bring skills to life and I'm not sure how people ever pick up skills if they don't get that actually Right. by sheer fortitude I guess but um, <laughs> anyway so I was interested in that I just um that was my first experience in DBT was doing skills groups and mm-hmm. it was a long time ago but I still remember your <laughs> the, 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 uh, original impressions with um it there were some wonderful moments there were th- yeah. there were days I thought I wouldn't recover from, but they were great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not easy, but it's but it's very rewarding and, and really yeah. meaningful work. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So tell us about um, Jackson. Um, he was he was I think you had told me that he was basically a healthy kid. Mhm. Mhm. And then yeah. um, so did anything happen leading up to that night in September that was made it was kind of warning signs of trouble. No, not really.
1: Um, He was a little under the weather. Um, Probably any parent of a toddler can can relate to this, but you know, just they're a little lethargic, a little slow, maybe not super hungry. He felt warm to the touch. Took his temperature about four times. The highest they ever got was 99.1. Gave him a little bit of ibuprofen before bed. I mean, it was pretty standard, just feeling under the weather, probably coming on with a daycare cold. And whether that was part of what happened or totally a coincidence, because kids are often very sick when they're in daycare and acclimating to that new environment, you know, it's anybody's guess. But that was, Mm. he was a completely healthy, thriving child. Mm. Yeah.
0: And so it wasn't like you expected anything and, um, no. yeah. And then, and then what happened?
1: Well, I guess I can start the story a bit by putting it in context. So like I've said, he died on September 20th, which uh, was just after his second birthday. And also for anyone aware of hurricane Maria just so happened to be the exact same morning that uh, Puerto Rico was pretty much decimated by a terrible hurricane. Um, and as I've alluded to, that's where my family's from. So actually the night before he died on September 19th, I actually remember going to sleep that night feeling um, so terrified uh, that some sort of tragedy could befall my family. And mm. I felt helpless. I felt um, worried and, and wondered in my mind how on earth we would survive it if something terrible happened to our dear cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents who all live there. Um, and so then the next morning I woke up and probably six something, I don't know what time it was, and I was actually surprised that Jackson hadn't woken up yet. He was an early riser, Mm -hmm. but I figured that he was just sleeping in. Like I said, maybe maybe it was a good thing. He was kind of under the weather. I thought, okay, he's getting the rest he needs. Um, So I sort of just went on with my morning, um, which again was unusual because Usually I woke up to him asking to be taken out of his crib. So I just sort of went on with my morning for a little bit. um, And I actually took the opportunity to call my mom and check in on how the family was doing in Puerto Rico. I was very worried. Like I said, she gave me a preliminary report that everyone was safe so far, but that the eye of the hurricane still hadn't quite passed over. It was imminent. It was going to be happening within the hour. So we were very tense. Mm I Hopped in the shower, I came out, I saw my husband, and I said, is Jackson still sleeping? And he said, yeah, he's still sleeping. And I said, gosh, that's so surprising. And so we checked the monitor, there he was, looking asleep, and I thought, okay, he's still sleeping. And this kind of went on for a while, getting briefly distracted, checking with my mom about our family safety, and then checking back to the monitor, Um, and about... You're checking not
0: him personally, but the monitor, which...
1: So it's like a we could hear and see. So I'm looking at him, and he's what I think asleep in his crib. He looks, so he looks totally fine. Just asleep. He looks totally yeah. fine. And so I sort of you know went back and forth like that for a while. And um, by about I want to say 7:45, I started to worry not that something even was wrong with him, but I was worried I'd be late for work. I was actually heading to DBT consult team. Um, and I was worried that Jackson was going to be late for daycare. So we did the unusual thing of having to wake up our child, which again, Jackson's an early riser. We actually, I know parents often have to wake up their kids, but that was never true for us. So we kind of went in together and we said, okay, let's, let's go wake him up and check on him. So we go in and, um, went together and we found him dead in his crib and it was the most horrific moment of my entire life.
0: I can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm.
1: And it was apparent at that point that he had died at some point in the night, um, without any cry or sound because we, like I said, we had the monitor so we could hear and see, um, and, as far as we can tell he just never woke up because we didn't hear anything and i have those super human mom ears that hear all the things um Mm. and it was just shocking for all the reasons that you said before that he was this perfectly normal healthy thriving child he had just had his two-year well child visit like the thursday before like five days before um so yeah no warning no no warning signs at all except that slight feeling under the weather and just thought he was coming down with a cold but as we all know healthy kids don't die from colds, so it's it's unknown why he died.
0: Did you know? Did you know immediately that he was dead when you were right there, or did you kind of double check yeah. your perceptions again and again? Or I mean, I'm just trying to imagine.
1: Yeah, it's a wild thing because in retrospect, I knew that he was dead the moment that I turned him over. Um, he had all the signs of having passed away i don't know how many hours ago but it had not just happened it um he was um clearly not had not been alive for a while um yeah. Yeah. but it's that thing where you just cannot accept that in that moment um and oh. you just can't believe it in that moment and of course we just sort of were wildly you know screaming and calling nine one one and um You know, when I, when I was talking on 911 with the dispatcher, what I kept saying was, hurry, hurry, my son is dying. And then at some point, I think I even said something like, I mean, I think he's already dead. You know, so there was this sense of, you know, of course I knew that he wasn't alive anymore, but Mm. there was this feeling of urgency, like, well, let's just wait and see. They're going to be here any second. They might be able to do something. Yeah, let's do everything we can. All of that. Exactly. Um, so, so it was, you know, in retrospect, interesting how long it took us to really sink in with that reality. But it's understandable, I think, where people just cannot quite accept that in that moment.
0: So, and you you and Brian came in, both of you, to the room.
1: Thank goodness. We were together, yes.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was a good thing.
1: That was a really good thing. I, I, I think about all the ways in which it could have been different and one of the things I feel grateful for. It's strange to feel grateful about any circumstance of this event, but one of the things I'm grateful for is that we were together at home. I'm glad I wasn't alone.
0: It must be unimaginable if you were just alone or, you know, if you were just a single parent or something like that.
1: Absolutely. And I know stories like that through connecting with other parents who have experienced a similar story. S U D C said an unexplained death in childhood. And um and, and there are there are other parents who have definitely done this alone, and, and it's it's awful.
0: What did you say? Sudden unexplained death in childhood. See you.
1: Yes. S-U-D-C, F- it's an F- acronym.
0: S-U-D-C.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And it's a category of death. It's not a diagnosis. Um, so what that means is that we don't actually know why these children die. Mm-hmm. It's actually thought to be some sort of an older version of SIDS, which more people have heard of, and infants up until 12 months old. And then right. S-U-D-C is the term that's used when the child is between 1 and 18 years old.
0: Mm-hmm. But there's no presumption of, of knowing what happened.
1: No. It's, just, it's,
0: it's a category, you know, of unexplained. I don't know.
1: And thank goodness there's this wonderful... Uh, organization called the SUDC Foundation that was created something about 20 years ago, um, co-founded by Laura Crandall. She's actually a research scientist at NYU mm. in the Department of Neurology and the School of Medicine, and she's also an SUDC parent. She lost her 15-month-old daughter, Maria, uh, about 20 or so years ago, mm. um, and so she's this incredible woman. I mean, she called us personally after this happened and has connected us with so many resources, and, and the foundation as a whole provides support and advocacy and research um, for families, and they are very, very dedicated to finding an answer, to help us find an answer. Um, So we're actually enrolled in their SUDC Registry and Research Collaborative, where we've donated Jackson's tissues, and Ryan and I have both donated blood samples and answered a whole battery of questions, and the hope is that um, some really, you know, um, directed research in this area that we can get some answers, so... Yes,
0: well. I tell you, I'm just I can't I don't know how to formulate a question about this but you know you do research in this kind of thing so let me think I mean it and and it isn't because I it isn't because I'm worried that you're be too sensitive to it. you make it obvious that it's possible to talk with you about these things but there's um, I'm trying to think of when people go through something like this and when you go through this in particular um, the shock uh, of what happens to what your brain expects and what your your whole self expects and that at that moment which is unlike any other moment before or since um, is such a shock such a, a huge must be or just a complete change in one's biology instantaneously somehow and I just wonder if you can say more about that and it's almost that if that kind of level of shock must in itself be possible to be some somewhat traumatic, Mm -hmm. Um, because it'd be like having a a blowout uh, in some biological system.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what makes this both um, loss and trauma, right? Because we know that loss of a loved one of any kind is a very, very painful experience, and what makes it beyond, quote-unquote, just a loss, but actually a traumatic event is this quality you're describing about the sudden unexpected nature of it where it is just Mm -hmm. totally out of the blue Um, and I think that that's that's the trauma piece of it Um, and and it is a shock to your system and it's impossible to compute at first like I sort of described earlier Mm -hmm. and um, yeah I just I have this this memory from that morning that it sort of Speaks to, I guess, this idea that you are asking about and kind of connects with this idea of natural healing that you brought up earlier. But I remember being upstairs in our bathroom shortly after this happened. I mean, you know, of course we had call 911, all the um, police and firefighters and paramedics and mm. um, medical examiner—all these people in our home and family and friends rushing in—it um, was very chaotic. And and at some point, I don't know, maybe an hour after this happened, I'm upstairs in our in our bedroom bathroom with my husband alone, and I just remember just screaming over and over again, like, "I can't! I can't! I can't!" and there was this sense of, like, absolute rejection of Mm. reality, like, this is not happening. I cannot cope with what's happening. I cannot Mm -hmm. handle what's happening. Mm -hmm. And there was this moment that was very powerful. And I've thought a lot about it since. But as I'm telling him, I can't, I can't, I can't, there was this sort of voice in my head that sort of gently rebutted, like, but you are, like, here you are. And you're Mm. doing it. And it, Mm. And it was this sort of, moment of uh, surprise for me where i thought of course something like this if anything like this were ever to happen which i never expected would happen you expect that you would just sort of keel over and die or something um, yeah, right. but it was this first glimpse of a moment of like and i'm, I'm still somehow here. still living yeah
0: mm-hmm. and like
1: the fact that my heart was still beating and my lungs were still breathing like my body was just pushing me along And helping me survive the unsurvivable. Um, And I think that that was the beginning of me understanding the grief process or even the trauma process as being a natural process. So I think that ties back to what you were talking about. You know, what I'm struck
0: with there is the. is the. um, that you you didn't think of it as this but you um, you were able to remain mindful of the fact that you were alive Yeah. Um, which sounds of course in some way but I wouldn't say of course because I do think that it would be possible to be in that exact situation and not have that other voice occur to one to say but I'm still here I mean it reminds me of all the practices that you've probably done and that people do in meditation practices or in mindfulness <clears throat> practices when they breathing in I know that I'm breathing in and how that's the first simple exercise you learn with Thich Han. breathing in, I know I'm breathing in and breathing out I know that I'm breathing out is such a profound exercise and at a moment like what you were going through it was in sort of, you know, it was like I know that I'm here you know thinking that I'm going to die thinking I cannot make it but noticing that I'm still here is a profound um, thing and I would think some people might not actually get to the point at the beginning where they have that experience um, you'd have to have enough somehow presence of mind to know that and yet it does seem like it's like if there's anything at the very beginning that's an indicator of okay you're already on a process of mm-hmm. natural healing
1: mm-hmm.
0: it might that might be one of the pieces in the process
1: yeah like that that was that was an important piece, and that is a great point. and I think you know you imagine like, how on earth will I cope with this? and then you realize I already am coping with this. I'm already mm. on this journey. and I think that's been at the crux of what I've sort of learned the most through this is mm. that surviving trauma or grief or whatever we want to call this doesn't actually require that you know what you're doing or have a plan. Like I did have this initial strong urge, like I have to figure out what this is. How long does it take? What am I supposed to be doing kind of moment by moment? Because that's Mm. a bit my personality is to be structured and and clear in that way. Um, But I think it was powerful for me to learn that you don't really need a plan for how to recover from this. And frankly, you don't need a PhD to learn how to recover from this. And at the same time, the dialectic because those things also helped um, it didn't hurt to have the background that I have to know um, these important principles could sort of guide my recovery
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I think you hear these things from all kinds of people um, in their, whatever has been their life experience there's there's a certain wisdom about recovery the from traumatic things that you find among people who've been through traumatic things mm-hmm. um, That you know, I think is worth worth sharing. I wanted to ask if you would say a little more about this really interesting thing you said about um, about the in a way the body uh, you your whole you knowing that everybody knows how you know that this is a process you go through. that grief or or loss or recovery or something is just a natural process. You don't have to go to a seminar Mm -hmm. on how to recover, but it's within your body. It's within evolution, whatever. Could you say more about what you mean about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the way I kind of came to think about it as I was going through this in those very early days is that the same way that human beings are wired to love, um, human beings are also wired to grieve. Um, and those are two Mm. sides of the same coin in some way, um, that this is not something, like you said, you need to take a seminar in to know how to do. This is something people have been doing for a long time. Um, and that as a species, we simply have tools to be able to do this. And, um, you Mm. know, I have this, um, story about a, a friend Um, who basic, and I shared this at the, at the eulogy when I spoke, but, um, you know, back when I was pregnant, I was very afraid of the birth process. And so I was in my ninth month of pregnancy talking with my good friend, uh, Sophia and, um, what she said was, you know, I think all mothers need a sign in the delivery room that says you will get through this, like the billions of women that have gotten through this before you. Mm -hmm. And I remember sort of chuckling at that idea and also being comforted by that idea that, okay, just, you know, just because something is excruciatingly painful doesn't mean we can't get through it. In fact, we're wired and and trained to get through that. Um, So for me, after Jackson died, that sort of came back and I thought to myself, okay, just as I doubted my ability to get through birth, this was a reminder to me that, again, no matter how excruciating the pain, I did have sort of these natural tools or ancient tools to recover from trauma and even the most horrific of losses. And I think that that was this, again, powerful idea for me about, yes, it is helpful to have um, this background that I do have. And I don't want to minimize how important that's been in my recovery process, but there Mm -hmm. is this sense that recovering after trauma is, is possible and and actually kind of the norm. Um, And it's something that does happen for most people, naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not to say um, that everybody is going to have that uh, trajectory either. Um, so one thing I want to make sure to say is that just because I've been able to adapt reasonably well to the trauma doesn't mean that anyone who's struggling with their own aftermaths of trauma is to blame for their particular recovery trajectory or their PTSD or depression symptoms or whatever they're suffering from. The last thing I want to do is alienate listeners or accidentally fuel kind of unhelpful, untrue beliefs about there's something wrong with me. Why am I not part of this natural recovery group? Because I think the reality is that it's never the trauma survivor's fault if they end up with PTSD or whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the way we respond to and cope with traumas and losses, like you alluded to a minute ago, reflects so many factors like biological, social support, learned history stigma, life stressors. And a lot of those are external or outside of our direct control. And so I do think looking back, I was lucky to be so privileged to have, like I said, the training that I have, the, the incredible social support that I have, just general stability, financial, otherwise, and frankly, surrounded by a community of psychologists. All of my friends are psychologists. Everyone I work with is a psychologist. And I think um, that has really, really helped. So it, it's kind of this 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 message I want to say is that part of this is that natural recovery is the norm and it's possible and holding up also this piece, which is that I feel very fortunate to have these extra factors that really, um, made it more possible for me to take the harder, but ultimately more effective coping. You know,
0: one of the things that it's making me think about something that I also talked with Melanie about, and I, and you probably listened to it. Um, when she was talking about how, um, things that are traumatic aren't necessarily just the ones that happen to you but they can happen vicariously to you through someone else um Mm -hmm. someone even learning your story could feel traumatized by your story um i would imagine but but then i was just thinking processes of recovery can can that also be gained vicariously Mm -hmm. because then i was thinking when i was a kid um you know I used to read a magazine that lots of people grew up reading, lots of boys anyway called boys life um and every every magazine had uh i always went first to the story of a rescue um where there was you know somebody was dying or something was happening, and there was a boy, usually a boy scout that then did this amazing thing or just you know followed his instincts and then And I think I grew up with so many stories in my head of how you can have things get to the point of peril. And then um, there are ways out. Um, And I was always interested in that now that I think of it. And in a way, if you know that there's, in a way, the the part of what you're saying that also would apply to this is that when you study these things, when you think about these things, even if you research these things, what you're studying is pathways of recovery. Um, pathways of how did somebody get into hell and how did somebody recover and and you've got a lot of stories in your head and you've got like Marshall Linehan behind you as a whole personal story and a teacher um, and all the stories that Melanie can talk from about treating trauma so it, it tells you wait a minute one can get through these things mm-hmm. um, every religion has these kind of stories And ways to cling to something and I I just was thinking about that I mean you if you were a different person you might be saying you know what really helped me let's say you didn't have a PhD you didn't go to college but you were in a certain church growing up you might be saying you know if it hadn't been for everything I learned from my church about hope and about redemption and the possibilities you know so in thinking about what helps people because I was going to ask you this is kind of the longest wind-up to a question I've ever heard, but um, that's just the way I am, and um, i try always trying to accept it.
1: I'm following you. You are? Oh, good. Yes. Thank you.
0: Um, I, I I wanted to ask, but I, I know there's no uh, big answers uh, immediately to this, but like even though you were... Uh, in a way without thinking about it because you didn't think oh I'm, I'm gonna live myself live I'm gonna live my life in such a way as to be prepared for traumatic things um, yeah. I, and yet if one did if one did want to um, you might say build a curriculum for children and young adults for being ready for the shit that happens in life I wonder what it would include it might include a lot of stories of. Of that, um, and it might include a lot of things that that you have come to learn through your education as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, and and I think you're right about seeing other people coping with the unthinkable actually mm-hmm. might um, transmit some sort of hope. Um, or belief that one can survive something like this. Um, you know, as you were even talking about that, what came up for me was thinking about, okay, unlike what you were describing with your upbringing, where you experienced a lot of these uh, early traumas and, and losses, um, you know, this was really the the first big one for me. Um, so in some ways I'm very lucky that I can make it to 31 years old. And this is the very, very first thing that just totally flattened me. Um, I've certainly had challenging struggles and stressors of, of kind of the, the normal variety, but nothing like this. And in some ways that was again, really fortunate. Um, and in other ways it sort of was like, Oh my gosh, what do I draw from? <laughs> this is a big one to be my first one. Um, and, you know, for me, I think it was my clients, like watching my clients get through so much and, and thinking about how strong they were and, and seeing people from pre to post when I would do assessments in our clinical trials. And basically mm-hmm. I was the assessor, so I would, I would ask them about the trauma, and about all their PTSD symptoms, suicide, depression, et cetera. and then I would meet with them 12 weeks later at the post post. Um, and oh my gosh they had they had worked so hard and changed so much
0: mm-hmm. and
1: it was it was quite surprising for me actually to see how much how how effective these interventions can be and and how strong people can be in surviving just the most unthinkable tragedies mm-hmm. um and and i think that for me in some way it was the clients themselves watching them recover from trauma was this kind of guiding light for me as I approach doing it myself when I, when I thought to myself, okay, I need to do exposure. I need to do this and that I need to challenge this kind of unhelpful belief. I thought to myself, well, I've seen, I've seen my clients do this. I, I can probably mm-hmm. do this too. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me it was, you know, certainly friends and family who you see go through things like this, but I have to say I, I credit my clients a lot with instilling me with hope that this, that this stuff really works. What do you think, um,
0: what what are the when you and I first uh, talked about this it sounded like really some things that had been somewhat the focus of your professional life and your personal learning uh, in that respect also translated over into what you've what's helped you and what, can you just say some things and we also have next week to go but I just talk to us some about what have been the main ingredients do you think that helped you cope with this traumatic situation over the past eight months.
1: Yeah. Well, I could definitely break it down, uh, DBT skills and modules, because let me tell you, I feel very Mm. grateful to have that as like a kind of structured framework for thinking through a lot of these things. Um, And I'll start with acceptance, Um, Mm -hmm. as we often do. um, I think that, like I said, it wasn't something I was going to be able to radically accept the moment it happened. In fact, I did not accept it the moment it happened, nor could I, really. Um, But I think over time, I realized that that was something that needed to happen. And interestingly, um, you know, there's something that a lot of people have said To me which is uh, the idea like no parent should ever have to bury their child Hmm. and I think that um, it's well-intentioned and I think it makes sense that people say that it's an effort to kind of validate or comfort our loss and our pain and and I I know it's a well-intentioned sentiment and at the same time I think that that's sort of what was at the root of my suffering I mean a lot of things were at the root of the suffering but that in particular this should like Jackson should not have died was a Mm -hmm. really, really tricky stuck point for me. Mm. And what I realized is that it was actually increasing my suffering to buy into this idea. So what I realized early on was was that acceptance was going to be critical here. um, And I had to work to let go of this idea that he shouldn't have died. And as I was able to do that, I noticed that my suffering went down, or as Marcia would say, turns Excruciating suffering into quote unquote just pain. And mm-hmm. I think it's really just rooted in this notion that the belief that I was owed more time with Jackson was making it worse. And so shifting towards focusing on what time we did have together as being a gift and not a given mm-hmm. was really helpful. And I think the other thing with acceptance is just sometimes controversial well, given everything that came before, it sh- couldn't have been any other way or it should have been this way. And I think you know, that's the I want to ask
0: part, you, I think what yeah. you're saying right now is so so huge that um, I want to, Maybe maybe not much more can be said about it, but I want to ask because I think when you say, when you say this about no, no parent should have to be their, bury their child and one shouldn't have to, uh, that he shouldn't have died and you're owed more time with him, each time you said one of those, I thought, yeah, damn it. That's true yeah I mean yeah. it's like even now even and I'm once uh, I'm way removed from it compared to your situation and I thought wait a minute don't go past that so quickly yes you are owed that but, um, <laughs>
1: yeah but yeah
0: but I and so I want and and yet you talk of it you're talking about something in a period of one paragraph that would be a lifetime of emotional work Um yeah. in some ways and I wonder how so what I guess I want to ask is Can you say anything? Was there anything that you did that's actually reproducible or or discoverable or mentionable um, that you actually did that moved you in the direction of um, from uh, thinking uh, I am owed more time to thinking? No, I'm not really owed anything. It, it A terrible thing happened. I'm really sad. I'm, I'm, I'm. It's really, it isn't a question of fair or unfair. It isn't a question of what I was owed or what I should have had. I mean, how did you move in that direction, which I can certainly see, and I would think most people could see that it would help with some of the degree of suffering, though it might actually liberate even more of a certain kind of sadness?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, and I definitely didn't arrive at it overnight. And, like, I yeah. often... Um, say to clients too, I think acceptance is something you sort of bop in and out of at times, even if you can radically accept something completely. There's mm-hmm. going to be times that you fall out of that. And that does happen to me sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I will say that in terms of, you know, what, what allowed me to think in this way, um, I think it kind of goes back to some mindfulness, but noticing how I felt when I thought about it as if he shouldn't have died, like when I heard that at the same time that it was comforting again because I could tell someone was trying to comfort me, I just noticed my, anger, just my suffering go up. And then I read this New York Times article that somebody had shared with me early on. I think the title of it is Not All Children Live. It was, it was some horrible story about a, mm. a parent who was walking, I think in New York City, actually walking with their child in some sort of a brick fell from a tall place and just killed their child on the street. It was something like that. Mm. And them talking about, and the title was Not All Children Live. And I remember my reaction to that. It was a horrible story, and I felt awful reading about this, this poor tragedy. And at the same time, I was like, you're right, not all children live. People uh-huh. die. And I think there's this piece about it that I just noticed how I felt, like my, what my reaction was in my body to statements like not all children live and parents should never have to bury their child. And I noticed that the suffering lifted when I sort of accepted that death, you know, we are mortal beings and and whatever took Jackson that's the tricky part is I don't know what took him but whatever took him uh followed laws of nature chemistry physics and there is a comfort in that because then if that's true then given everything that led up to his death whatever that was whether in his brain or his heart or a seizure or whatever it was then he actually again controversial but should have died and it's a really, really hard thing to stomach. And it's taken me a while to stomach that. But it's, it's kind of, I think of it this way, like, I wish that whatever took him obviously spared him instead. I wish that with right. all my might. But that would be like dropping an egg off of a skyscraper and wishing it didn't break. Like something natural caused him to die. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And that
1: helped me to accept it. And I have noticed that my suffering has gone down since.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's how different it is than um what my mother would have said in these situations and did say in these kind of situations which was um uh, I, my name was Chuck as a boy not Charlie and <laughs> Chuck uh, god has a plan we we don't always know the plan but you have to know that there's a plan and you have to know that that this is you know and and I have rebelled about that for about um 60 years um, just thinking come on oh uh, that's just that's just sort of papering things over on the other hand there's something profound there it's just that you know it, it may be a different way of talking about that that there is something about what happened and, and in that whether it's right it isn't like there is a God necessarily of a certain kind that has a certain kind of plan but there is a way of saying you know this too happened mm-hmm. this too happened and the whole thing, I mean, things happen and, and we can't be in control of everything that happens. And I think it may just help let go of some of that fight that, um, uh, of, that doesn't really have anywhere to go once he's not alive anymore. Exactly.
1: The and idea I think that, that he was... should be
0: alive is still what's left of his life.
1: Right. Um. And I think that that's at the crux of it. It was like, there's already this baseline pain of so much sadness and, so, mm. I mean, so much pain. But then to add on to that, the fight, the fight against the reality of the situation was just exhausting me. And I think it feels automatic. It feels like something you can't turn off, but it's exercising that ability to to shift in that thinking and to, to truly radically accept it. It was it was what we describe in DBT as kind of this this it liberates you mm. initially it's like wow I can take a breath and give up that fight that fight to rejecting reality is added on and it doesn't mm-hmm. need to be there mm-hmm. and that's the part that I feel freed from for the most part
0: mm-hmm. really I've, I've said this before on this podcast I don't know if you heard it because probably in one of the earlier podcasts um, in talking about my close friend Cindy who died of cancer yeah. That when she shortly before her she died when she uh, was sitting on the back porch of her house and with me and said, you know, I've spent all these eleven years thinking, why did this happen to me? Why did I get cancer? And she said, today I woke up thinking, um, why not me?
1: Yeah.
0: Why not me? Why should it be someone else? Why? You know, of course I got cancer or something like that. And she said, I could just tell in her face that it led it was a whole different way of reacting to it if only people could move to that through that I mean that's what we I think we try to do with our patients sometimes that are dealing with something that they're profoundly traumatized by or they've lost and they, they're stuck they're stuck in it with it and um, if only there were a way to help somebody get to that point and I do think that's a lot of what Marshall and work has had to do with is with radical acceptance and other people with radical acceptance but you're describing something that happened What's one of the things I'll just say personal reaction to um, to this is it's so interesting to talk to you because you are so articulate and are able to talk about these things and yet um, uh, I don't for a second feel like the fact that you can put these together in such great sentences and paragraphs and make it make sense um, I know you went through hell uh, there's a way you talk about it that it, it's clear you refer to it but you refer to it not from inside it at the moment but you must still go through I just can't imagine with this magnitude so I just want to ask you about that because we're going to be continuing to talk also next time and I don't know if other people listening to you have this reaction but maybe it's just because of how articulate you are I want to um, I'm always thinking no did. Did, did she go through that kind of hell that i can imagine like i would have died and then i think yeah. no she did she really did yeah. she's just pulled something together here
1: yeah well, God, i don't well, thank mean to you invalidate you, so you for... obviously but... no it's it's a compliment thank you very much and 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 i think you're totally onto something which is something i've been thinking a lot about lately and in fact i you know uh keep a website where I, I write about these things sometimes, and it's, that's the thing I wrote about most recently. And it's this idea that um, a lot of times, you know, we ask ourselves as, as clinicians, as psychologists, well, how is somebody functioning? Like that's like the, at the crux of like what makes something a disorder versus not mm-hmm. a disorder is how impaired are they? How how well are they mm-hmm. functioning? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. by any measure of functioning, um, I think that Brian and I are functioning quite well. Mm. And I'm very grateful for that. I, I'm very grateful that I, you know, took a very brief Leave, but was able to return to work, you know, two months later or so. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, you know, my my marriage is strong. That um, I'm able to see clients again. I'm defending my dissertation in seven weeks. I mean. By any measure of functioning, yeah. um, we're doing quite well. And I think that's sort of what you're maybe picking up on that it yeah. sounds like we're good, you know. Um, and at the same time, it's like you intuitively know um, and can tell also that there is pain beneath the surface that mm-hmm. is still there. And just because someone is functioning really well doesn't mean they're not still hurting and grieving every single day. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's very true to my experience. I feel very grateful. It's kind of a double-edged sword. I feel very grateful for how well I'm able to function and how the, you know, troops around me have enabled me to function. And um, mm. by troops, I mean my colleagues, family, friends, I mean, I, I owe a lot of that to them too. And um, And at the same time, something about functioning well sort of can have the potential to mask how much there still is there Mm -hmm. Um, but but you're right that there's still a lot of pain there and every every morning when I open my eyes it's the very first thing I connect with Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. Jackson you know I think about him Mm -hmm. and I continue to miss him and I mean throughout the day I mean it's Mm -hmm. not just even that I think of him daily I think of him hourly I think of him moment to moment but it's not in a way that has totally catapulted my life and turned it upside down I mean in some ways it totally has turned up my, my life upside down. And in other ways, um, it's, it's something that we have been able to, to survive and also grow out of. Um, and mm-hmm. those are complicated feelings to, to grow out of something like this because it feels like nothing can grow out of something so horrible. Um, but things do grow out of this and, things and accepting that that's okay, you know, and that that's not a sign that, that you're not missing them or not hurting or not, um, loving them. But that it's okay to grow out of these things. It's complicated, but it's it's all you part know, of it.
0: It is complicated because don't we work with a lot of people and maybe know some people that um, have been laid low by a bad experience, one or another terrible experience that they've had, and they uh, really are not functioning, and um, in their life. And then um, and then you learn when you work with them for a while that for some people it almost feels mandatory that you that you stop functioning i don't know it's just it's a bizarre way to put it i don't i don't think i'm getting quite at it but it's sort of like as as if as if as a demonstration to oneself that it is as bad as i think it is then how dare i function yes you have to allow yourself to still function and allow yourself to feel terrible and and right I, I can remember I was do, I was teaching a DBT workshop in Sweden, um, and at, at a soccer stadium of all places. No, it wasn't because there were 10,000 participants. Um, it was the top floor of a soccer stadium, a big fancy soccer stadium, where uh, <laughs> the top floor was where they had uh, kind of a an, a room that overlooks the stadium, and we did our training inside that room. So you're looking down and. I something very bad was happening with one of my children during that time and I was away from home and I would uh, I mean it was really scary and uh, so I would teach for the morning and there'd be 1030 break in the morning and then I would go sit out at the stadium on the on the stands and I would burst into tears for about 15 minutes and I didn't want anyone to come and um, the people who I was working with knew that what I was going through but I said I just need a break every you know during break and then I would pull myself together and come back and teach and then I would have lunch and at the end of lunch the same thing had happened And at night it would have it was sort of um, and then I would think what's the matter with me that I can teach pretty well <laughs> while my while we're going through this horrible thing um, that yeah. I can't do anything about from here but it's really how do you function and not fun- how do you function and also feel terrible and let yourself function is is a skill in itself
1: I think you're so right about that, and I can relate so much to to that thinking, um, and I think that's been an important one for us to to take in, which is you know functioning is not negating or invalidating our pain mm. because it can feel like it's mutually exclusive, it's one or the other, um, and the reality is like with many things it is both um, mm-hmm. you can be functioning and and experiencing pain, and thankfully it's a pain that is not totally destroying your life in a way that, you know, you can keep your job, you can keep your relationships, keep doing the mm-hmm. things that are meaningful to you and important to you, um, but that the pain is still there and, and it doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting what you said about acceptance is a huge part of this is somehow being able to accept things. It just highlights, again, I think the brilliance of Marshall and Hans work on trying to break things down in acceptance into acceptance skills to teach people because so many of these things are not easy to grab hold of Um, but I think important and very related to it for me in the principles of acceptance is just one more thing I want to ask you about in the final minutes before we stop today is you you've brought up several times how fortunate you were to have this community of support around you be it family Brian friends colleagues etc and I'm and I've you know in In every podcast I've done with someone else uh, you know um, Domingo Marquez from Puerto Rico and from uh, Cedar Coons uh, and in Melanie's discussions the importance of the social fabric that somebody's part of I I just was thinking as I thought about what you went through and now hearing this just thinking you know just like the by now trite saying but profound saying <laughs> it takes a village that mm-hmm. it's very hard to do this what you're describing to do this without the uh, in, in interwoven and this is like a loss of a whole community this is a loss of for your colleagues in a strange way mm-hmm. uh, for your friends a loss for your family obviously um, and a loss for you but the fact that you experience yourself as part of a larger group as did as did uh, Cedar made a big deal out of this, when she was talking about her loss of her sister to suicide, um, that it really helped her through um, to be back and forth interacting with supportive people. Yeah:
1: Yeah, that has been foundational us. Um, I think we have an extraordinary support system, which, again, I don't think I could have made it through any of this without those people. Um, And I have a lot of thoughts to share about social support, um, which hopefully we can get to next week as we continue this conversation. Um, But I think there's a way in which some pieces of social support is kind of um, a more passive experience of just like taking in what others give out. And Mm -hmm. then there's this more active piece of it, which is how to shape your social support to be what you need it to be. And sometimes you don't know immediately what you need, but when you figure out what you need, how to use, I guess, behavioral principles to sort of, to shape that support system into -hmm. into what you need is an empowering experience. So I have a lot of thoughts to share on that. And hopefully we can get to that We've
0: got to get to that. I've just decided to (laughs) By decree, we're ending the next 167 hours, and we're starting next week's right now.
1: I that. I want to
0: go right to that one. So well, we'll everyone on that. the phone will agree. Um, no, anyway, uh, what does, this does, I do. What I do want to talk to you about now, and this happened with Melanie too, is I'm um, I'm going to talk to you about whether you can go a third time. But I don't want to put you on the spot because if you can't, you can't. <laughs> But um, I'm realizing there's so there's such a, a minefield here of possibilities and and I didn't yeah. even know about that one. Um, I have a lot of interest in that and not a lot of formal knowledge except a lot of work with families before yeah. and a lot of people that I think listen to the podcast and support this podcast with Perry Hoffman and NEABPD doing family connections workshops is all about how to create that fabric too and yeah. so yeah. I want to I really want to hear that and talk with you about it so oh, I can't
1: wait sounds good so
0: next week um, yeah it's a it's a seven days from now we'll start at four o'clock and um, just we will continue and uh, we'll pick up where we left off as far and then whatever else comes in and I as I always encourage people if they want to email me anything uh, about any questions or comments about this podcast that we can weave into next time that would be great too so Natalia, thank you so much. It's so amazing, and I I really value that you're willing to talk.
1: Thank you, Charlie. It's been my pleasure.
0: Yeah. Okay. Good. Take care.
1: See you next week. Bye-bye. Okay.
0: Bye-bye.